Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Propagate Co-Chief Executive and Chairman Ben Silverman and President of Global Productions Isabel San Vargas about the launch of the company's new Spanish language division. Kinetic Content Chief Executive Chris Colan on the expansion of Netflix dating format Love is Blind and Astrid and Lily Save the World creators Betsy Van Stone and Noel Stearman on the sci-fi supernatural young adult comedy drama. Los Angeles-based Propagate launched new Spanish-language label Propagate Fuego earlier this year as the company looks to expand its slate on the heels of green lights for Mexican drama series Rebelled on Netflix and the horror comedy Pinches Momias for Televisa Univision's upcoming SVOD platform VIX+. Since its launch in January, the new Propagate division has also linked an exclusive first-look deal with VIX+, as it looks to gain a further foothold in the market. Propagate co-chief executive and chairman Ben Silverman and president of Global Productions Isabel San Vargas spoke to Jordan Pinto about why was the right time to launch Propagate Fuego, how its first look deal with VIX Plus sets the company up for future success and why streaming players with global aspirations have no choice but to invest in Spanish language programming. It certainly seems like there's a lot happening at Propagate uh, right now, especially following the announcement of the launch of the Spanish language division Propagate Fuego. And obviously, Propagate has produced Spanish language titles already, um, including um, Rebelled Way for Netflix and an upcoming um, series for VIX+. Um, And Ben, I know you have um, a history of being involved in high profile adaptations of Spanish language series such as Ugly Betty uh, and Jane the Virgin. Um, But I kind of wanted to start there by asking what prompted the launch of this Spanish language content division and why was now the right time to do it? Thank you. Yes. Well, obviously, we have a deep commitment to global content. And I think we're one of the unique uh, independent players in that we really believe in local language content around the world. But what Netflix helped accelerate and other are recognizing is how well that content can travel beyond its borders. And I think there was a long history of hyper language focused geographical green light process in which people didn't believe content from non-Anglo markets could travel. And now we're seeing this explosion of different content connecting to different audiences around the world, regardless of language. And both the dubbing quality has gotten better in terms of translation, as well as uh, people's ability and comfort level with reading subtitles. Specifically, as it relates to Fuego, Isabel, myself, and our partners really believe in that marketplace, both in and of itself within the United States and the growing Hispanic community. Isabel is a representative of that as a Mexican-American woman, as well as across South America. And we think with our unique location in uh, the United States, actually, uh, and with offices in both Miami and Los Angeles, we have a huge ability to create content that can travel not only within the Americas, but around the world. World, and we can you know, leverage our unique history in having focused on that community, having built content that serves those who have not had their voice heard. And now we can rise up together and really help platform that content. And it's now not only about creating great, unique ideas, which is what drives Isabella and my business practice, but also we can start to really showcase a new generation of writers, actors, and directors and producers uh, from 
the Latin marketplace. So it, you know, it's all those things kind of coming together, the, the market being ready, the explosion of success stories within exportability of different language content. And for us, building on a long legacy and history that is both authentic and organic to the Latin community. Isabel, anything you want to follow up on uh, at this point? Uh, no, I mean, I, uh, everything that, uh, that that Ben says, he perfectly encapsulates. And I, I mean, I think that that's the point of it. It's the market is right for it. What market was right for it. I feel like the market has actually been right for it for a really long time. So now we're capitalizing on it specifically with the fact that there's so many now streamers and people who are actually focused on this specific market. So it's, it's wonderful. Is this an idea that you've been kicking around for like a, a number of months, a number of years, or was is this? Yeah, something- I realized I, I wanted to make sure we had enough scale and executive power within the company to announce and plant a flag as a as a market leader, as an independent production platform focused on this market. But as a storyteller and producer and entre- media entrepreneur, I have always looked to do this, you know, whether it was building a show around Menudo, which I did, you know, 20 years ago, or whether it was uh, working so hard to keep the Latin elements of Ugly Betty and Jane the Virgin connected to those shows. And I remember originally pitching Ugly Betty and having to beg to have a Latin star and to make the elements and layering of her ugliness related to her feeling as an outsider in an Anglo world. And within Jane and uh, her story, it was incredibly important that not only would we translate that idea, but we would translate its Latin ethic and its Latin culture and its Latin authenticity in, in its matriarchal society. And then we did Hands of Stone, which was a movie starring Edgar Ramirez and Usher um, with Jonathan Jakakovich directing, a Venezuelan director. And we did that in a majority of Spanish language, shot it in Panama. And as I saw that start to perform with a little bit of a blended cast, like we, we did have Robert De Niro and John Turturro in it as well, that there was great opportunity to expand on it. And then boom, Netflix arrives, Amazon arrives, VIX gets built with the backing of Google and SoftBank. And we have this great momentum into the marketplace because we already have these deep relationships with multiple producers, writers, directors, and actors across the region. And we don't tell them, think small. We say, think big, think Hollywood, think large, think big audience. Don't limit yourself by the old guardrails and customs of the monopolistic uh, network. Think about the world as your market. Is it possible to talk about how how Propagate Fuego um, fits fits into the broader um, strategy for Propagate and like how, how this new uh, this new division sits within the the company at, at large? Yes, I mean as as you know, and as Isabel and I mentioned in, when we launched it, we have a deep roster of both Latin and Anglo executives focused on it because. We think it has so much not only upside in terms of growth uh, potential, but also such complement to the skills that our brilliant executives possess. You know, whether it's you know Rodney Farrell who came from running a film studio into our company as a development executive and scripted premium scripted, he is working across Shaka Zulu with Antoine Fuqua one day and working with Santiago Limon and Pinchas Mumias another day. And there's no gap. It's not like we're we are doing the 
opposite of putting this in a box. We are saying, let's unleash this on the world at equal footing, at equal standing. And let's watch as the budgets expand. Let's watch as the talent expands its reach. And let's help generate and work with the next group of storytellers. And maybe one day our relationship with Santiago and the work we do together will lead him to be the director of the next Batman. Or, you know, there are no limits on this opportunity for the talent and the creatives. And we have been there a long time. Like we've been producing in Mexico since Propagate started um, multiple Spanish language reality shows. And then over the past two years, we've expanded our scripted content. And I think the big difference from today, from yesterday or years ago, is the budgets now are rising to a point that we can really pursue subjects that weren't pursued before. We can expand into genres and we can expand into stories that were just limited by the money that local broadcasters could invest. Following up there on um, the kind of scripted versus the unscripted piece of the, the puzzle, do you, do you see this as being a kind of 50-50 split in terms of the Propagate Fuego and, and the projects it, it pursues? Or do you think it might be, it might lean either toward the scripted or the unscripted side? Yeah, I, I feel like at least at the onset, I think our purpose is probably to be equally split. But at least right now at the onset, it seems to be leaning a little more towards uh, scripted, uh, you know, the projects that are sold that are currently set up in different networks, they, they tend to be scripted. But as, uh, as Ben mentioned, I think organically our company from the beginning has done shows in that region and they were unscripted. So it's it's really a hybrid. Of both. I think what we're seeing is the streamers as they launch and define themselves in new markets tend to want scripted programming to be their defining programming. And then they want to fill the hours and time slots and um, capacity with unscripted, which is a slightly lower cost you know, opportunity for them. And so we are seeing a lot of these players, whether it's Peacock, VIX or Amazon or whomever, lead with kind of premium scripted. And then the follow, we believe, will be the non-scripted. And we're seeing it as Netflix is the most mature player in this marketplace. And they have migrated from um, premium scripted into filling out with premium non-scripted as well because of of both budget and because you want a mix of content. The audience doesn't turn on the TV and say, I want to watch scripted or unscripted. It turns on the TV and says, I want to be entertained. You know, so we've always believed in that. And it's another place where I think we're a unique company in the blend of genres we produce in. And Isabel runs our entire production platform in addition to managing this business unit. And within that, she is producing you know, hundreds of scripted and hundreds of non-scripted hours over the course of the year. And they are equally attended to and equally focused on. They require different skill sets, but we've built them all in-house at a high level. And we have showrunners within the company and producers who have expertise across all those genres as well. And I just want to pick up on something you mentioned a minute ago about the, the budgets increasing compared to where they were a few years ago. Has it been an enormous increase in terms of the, the budgets for Spanish language programming, or do you think it's a, is it kind of a modest? No, of a modest it's enormous for one, for a big reason. Before the shows were greenlit for their territory by a territorial broadcaster who didn't really bet on upside and distribution at scale. Now they're being greenlit by streamers who inherently have a global footprint and therefore are able to kind of expand the budgets just based on the audience they're able to reach immediately. 
So there was that budget expansion. And then there was the budget expansion that said, wait, these shows are performing almost as well as some of our other shows. Why aren't we investing in a commiserate way? Why aren't we going for things that haven't been done before? And I think there's a lot of interesting stories that have just not been told, limited by the fact that the budgets were so small. You couldn't do a Latin superhero because you couldn't afford to have them fly, uh, you know, or or you couldn't do a, you know, a horror project like the Pinterest Mummy is this brilliant show we're doing with Santiago for Bix. You just couldn't do it before because there wasn't the budget to do. We have CGI. We have unbelievable makeup crews. We have an incredible location. We have amazing uh, resources going into our projects because they weren't them. Um, in March, um, Propagate Fuego inked a first look deal with Vix Plus, which as most people will know, is the uh, is the escort service from uh, Te- Televisa Univision. Um, could you talk about how that deal first came together and, and why was that the, the right move and the right initial move for Propagate Fuego when you launched? We love betting on new platforms and we love investing in real estate before it becomes beachfront. <laughs> and I think we felt that with Wade Davis and Pierre Luigi and Rodrigo and the team that was assembled at VIX, that they were going to not only carry through their vision, but had a real marketplace leadership opportunity and had a long relationship with Wade from when he was the Viacom COO. And we believed based on our first project together, that they had the ability to really grow quickly. And they were committed to this market in a real way and not just as a kind of carpet bagging approach. They were of the market, for the market, by the market. And no one had done that yet. You know, it was always an add-on to an Anglo platform. It was kind of stage two or three to the other players, whereas this is their primal focus. And we really felt this was a great opportunity for both of us. We can consolidate for them. We can attract a plus talent for them. We can reach out and expand beyond their traditional kind of Mexican footprint. And I think all those things played into that decision and our ability to really double down and invest on our slates and our talent so that we knew we had a partner there for many of those projects. Uh, on the production side, um, I mean, I think it, we it's it's wonderful. I mean, it's people we already knew, um, a lot of the people that are coming into VIX. Um, so it's prior relationships either from Netflix, from Televisa that we dealt with uh, sporadically, or, or, or even people that work freelance in Miami, I feel like everybody that I at Univision that's that's part of Univision's production team, I already had relationships with. So it makes it so easy right now in like our in our first project, it going through that budgeting process, going through the logistics of it, them starting up as a new company and sort of like the the growing pains that they have in that. It's just so much easier having these prior relationships with them. So that's something that was really helpful in dealing with them. It just seems so specifically organic to us forming this relationship. It was like I'm already used to working with you. It's great. Do you have specific targets for the for the number of Spanish language series that you would like to get greenlit over the first 12 months or a, any kind of um, targets of that we, nature? We, you know what? The, the most fun part about being 
an independent entrepreneurial led platform is we have budget targets, but we don't have, you know, quota targets. And it's all about the best ideas that warrant the attention and the opportunity. We would love an infinite amount of programs to produce if they were able to break through and create culture, which is our entire MO at Propagate. And I think within this specific landscape, we're, you know, probably targeting six to eight productions a year right now and hopefully growing that number over the the coming years as we get our development slate into production. And as these streamers start to recognize what we recognized in the formation of Fuego, that this marketplace should be invested in. Yeah, I thought it was funny that you mentioned like quotas because it's like we never think of it that way. We always just think of more. (laughs) Every Um, interesting project that comes along our way. And we tend to be passion led. So, you know, there are different producers within the company who have passion for different projects and they kind of lead their projects through the process. And then we all help support them or grow those projects through access, relationships, talent. And I think that it's as much as our passion can produce. In terms of the the projects or the Spanish language projects that have been announced so far, there's obviously, and these aren't necessarily um, Propagate Fuego projects or were announced prior to that, but there's um, Rebelled Way and uh, Pinchas Momias. Are there any other ones that have been announced at this, this stage? Uh, Oye Mi Canto has been uh, announced. So We're shooting is, this in Miami. Yeah, in a few days. Um, uh, uh, so La Firma is unscripted. It's a, a music competition specifically in the Urbano type uh, uh, music that's focused on finding the next great artist in all of Latin America. So countries that are mostly focused on just because that's where the talent is coming from are Mexico, Colombia, Puerto Rico, and uh, the Dominican. But it's, uh, again, it's a show akin to the old days of making the band where it's like there's a record label involved, there's a record contract for these people, and they're just out there grinding and performing and just finding that next big artist. And that's for Netflix. So that's for uh, Netflix Mexico or Latin America. They're a little just Netflix Spanish. <laughs> There's a few other projects that have not been announced, so I don't think we can speak. Yeah, we we have currently um, we have Oimi Canto at Netflix, Rebelde Way season two coming to Netflix, Pinches Momias for Univision, and we have two other scripted series in production that are not yet announced that we put into development last year and just got greenlit over the past uh, six weeks. So um, across that slate is is four. Go series, which uh, five Go series of which four are scripted and one is non-scripted right now. And we've only just started our deal a month ago. Exactly. Clearly, I know when the um, when Propagate Fuego was first announced, um, a lot of the main Propagate executives are also involved in in the new Spanish language division. Will there be any structural changes or additional personnel brought in to facilitate what what seems like it will be a significant increase in in the overall uh, production volume? Well, yeah, we hired two specific executives for this effort, Catalina Ramirez who is an incredible Colombiana. And then Audrey Celentro, who we hired from Jennifer Lopez's New Yorican Productions. And those two women are spearheading the day-to-day across this. They come with unbelievable credentials and um, are part of this community and speak to this community and know how to develop for this community. And we're you know thrilled that this is going to be their permanent remit. And then across the company, I think we've always lived in a world that 
that doesn't ghettoize any part of our business. And in, in fact, we want our best brains across all things. And we really love experimenting and doing the next wave and new things. So, you know, a podcast in our group may not generate the same income that Shaka Zulu on Showtime will, but it is something we know we should be involved with and can grow and can have a new form of kind of cultural impact. And I think why people love working at our company is because we really do encourage everyone to pursue their creative passion. Isabel, the question I, want, I wanted to ask you is, um, has it been, is it nice to see the market and the world um, kind of catching up to the potential of Spanish language content? And, um, you know, it, it seems like everything is on the up and up here. Yeah, no, I, I think it is. I mean, I think it's something that obviously I felt was the case for, I think, about 20 years. <laughs> I mean, part of the reason that I actually, I really, really wanted, and uh, it was so to come to work for Propagate, even before Ben told me his vision about like forming this group, was the fact that Ben had already been responsible for things like Ugly Betty and Jane the Virgin, who I think it's very interesting. I think Ben just made this point where it's like they weren't ever ghettoized. I felt it was the sort of first very well written, didn't pander, didn't completely Americanize the, the, the people within it. They were just really good shows full of talented people. And those were the sort of things that like myself, I feel passionate about and I know could happen and wanted to happen. And now I feel like we're at the place where we're going to make it happen. So yeah, no, it's incredibly exciting for me to see. And it's incredibly exciting to see the fact that it's not just Netflix and a couple of streamers getting into it. I feel like everybody is, right? There's uh, Telemundo who long has been part of NBC. Like now they're, they're launching their part of Peacock. They, their target are a little bit different, not necessarily all of Latin America. They keep referring to this 200 percenters that are here in the United States, the Spanish speaking part of the United States, which for a very long time, I don't think anybody has ever focused on them. And that's like me, that's my family. I watch some Spanish TV. I watch a lot of English TV, obviously, but it's a mix. And a lot of households in, in, in America are that way, where we are watching both things. And we want, we want to be able to watch Spanish stuff that is premium and that is good and it's talented and it's not the same cliche. There's actually a term in Spanish about it, where it's like, oh, it's another churro, which is basically like, yeah, it's entertaining in a way, but it's really crap television. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just that, that that's what's really exciting um in the future will english language projects continue to represent the the, the vast majority of propagate slate or could we see um maybe not 50 50 but could we see spanish um spanish projects representing a, a much larger proportion i i feel today hollywood is still an anglo-centered marketplace and the vast majority of content greenlit when you start to include the broadcasters and cable platforms not just the streamers is going to be in English. But I do think Propagate's mix of foreign language or international content is going to start to creep up and match up with our scale in English language content. I think it's going to take a little while. I think we're in the you know early days of this. And I think we're going to have to see more Casa de Papels, more Rebeldes that deliver across multiple markets. And I think as people start to see that, they're going to want to green light more. There's a huge advantage in the Hispanic market specifically because it plays into the United States as the giants, as Isabel outlined, you know, huge U.S. Hispanic population. It plays across a continent into South America, excluding Brazil, my Portuguese brother. And then it, it plays into Spain. So you've suddenly already have this massive base of people 
and they are right there in our backyard. They are right there in our offices. They are right there in our communities, and they have been a silent majority, and now we are helping give voice and rise and partner and, you know, collaborate, and I think that it will grow, but in the near term, it's still an Anglo world. Um, do you consider the the English language slates and Spanish language slates as completely separate things, or is there a, a bit more fluidity here? Because obviously, Ben, you've been involved in adaptations from English to Spanish and probably vice versa. Yeah, do, do you see this as fluid or? Well, for, for your audience specifically, we have a great example, which is My Left Nut, which is a has, you know amazing K. Meller series that we were originally going to adapt into English, went through a process of development and then realized that it actually based on how the character uh, related to his kind of machismo and who his identity, that it would really play within a Latin culture that actually worked really well connected to Latin culture. So we're going to adapt it into Spanish language. And I think for us, it's really about where does that underlying IP or idea live best? Where does it serve in an authentic way the community's that will be the bread and butter of the show. And then from there, expand. You have to be unbelievably specific in order to be broad. I know that's a weird juxtaposition, but the more you can communicate something tribal or unique or specific, the more it feels real and authentic and the more the audience actually expands because it's interested in something that they haven't seen before. And so we're, you know, we're, we're in that process now, but it's a great question because we have opened our eyes to evaluating these in a different way. Three years ago, it would have been automatic English. And if we failed in English or however our process went, we wouldn't have thought about going in another door. Now we're analyzing things very differently. And I think one of the big reasons Vix wanted to make a deal with us is they knew we thought that way. And they knew they were going to get the best content in the world, not just the best Spanish language content in the world. World. I'm sure your answer to this question will be yes, um, because they're a par partner of yours now. But um, yes, how do you see and how um, uh, excited are you by the promise of the VIX platform for Spanish language content? Yeah, and I'm at least I know anecdotally <laughs> people I, you know, uh, uh, my families and friends and whatnot is I feel like, like it's something that they've been expecting for quite a while, actually. Like, you know, with the fact that everybody has been moving towards streamers. I know my mom like has been like downloading that uh, the the, the, the Univision app wondering like, is it going to be like Netflix? I'm like, not yet, mom. Just hold for a second. But I feel like the market was ready for it. Yeah. And I, and I would just echo, I think they have Televisa and this incredible library and this tradition of making this content. They have Univision, this amazing American, Hispanic, top tiered broadcaster. Now combining those forces backed by Google and SoftBank with an agenda that's specific, there's real run room for them. And I even like that they called it VIX, you know, because they didn't call it Olay or, or some kind of degenerative like offshoot. It's not like the way that many of the US big companies have looked at the marketplace by just kind of adding a little Latin flair to something that was anglicized already. You know, I think they're going to be focused and dedicated and it's going to be really interesting to watch it play out. And obviously we are fans and believers in their, in their opportunity. And I think one thing we've noticed across the spectrum of people we do 
deal with at every single streamer and platform from Telemundo to Univision to Amazon to Netflix is the executives are so talented and they don't have the same kind of arrogance and laziness that we encounter with our Anglo executives. Like they're, they're a little more purpose-driven and a little more focus-driven on like bringing their community to light. And I think that's intoxicating and, and really great to be connected to. And especially after kind of having been beaten down by these monopolistic, oligopolistic know-it-alls at these other companies who just, you know, it's insane. They're so arrogant. Outside of some of the buyers that you've already named, are there any new ones kind of coming up or any, like just for example, I know Stars has, uh, or Stars Play even has started um, commissioning a few more um, Spanish language originals. Like, are there any newer buyers that are kind of piquing your interest? You know, I think... It's a little wait and see on Disney, HBO, and Apple. Like where and when do they really double down and expand into other languages? They've been predominantly US focused as they roll out. And that's the same playbook that Netflix had. And then slowly they expand their reach into other markets as they reach capacity within the United States. And I think we just have to wait and see as they progress and move to the next level of their you know subscription participation and see that, wow, we've got every white-haired woman in Texas, maybe we need some brown-haired boys in Miami. And I think that's where we start to migrate and find opportunity will be this next phase, we're hoping, as they all expand and want to invest globally, not just uh, domestically. But for some of those uh, companies that you named, they're like the, the Disney's uh, and the uh, uh, HBO Max's. Um, do you see it as a matter of time before they start increasing their Spanish language investment? Or do you see it as a wait and see who kind of knows how the market will evolve kind of situation? They have to if they really want to be global streamers, right? They, they, there's not, they don't have a choice. <laughs> they, they are going to have to expand beyond, you know, and I think it's about what their capacity is. You know, maybe somebody wants to be like a premium, premium, premium streamer and charge you $99 and can live in a kind of smaller lane. But if you want wide population net and you want hundreds of millions of subscribers as Netflix has proven as possible, you're going to need to invest in a diversified slate, both in terms of genre and language. Ben Silverman and Isabel San Vargas speaking with Jordan Pinto. Kinetic content reality format Love is Blind has become a sizable hit within the Netflix ecosystem since its launch in February 2020. The show, which sees contestants dating and getting engaged without ever physically seeing one another, was recently renewed all the way up to season five, in addition to being adapted in Japan and Brazil. Netflix also commissioned US-based Kinetic recently to produce a crossover dating show featuring contestants from several of its reality series, including Too Hot to Handle, Love is Blind, The Circle, Selling Tampa and others. Kinetic Chief Executive Chris Colan spoke to Jordan Pinto about the company's approach to creating dating formats and what comes next for the Love is Blind franchise. I'd like to start by asking about Love is Blind, which has really taken off. The first two seasons were massive on Netflix. Um, it's been commissioned up until season five, which is re- rare in and of itself. Netflix has also made a Brazilian and Japanese version. And then Netflix also recently greenlit 
kinetic content to produce a dating format that brings together contestants um, from a number of its franchises, including Love is Blind. So there is plenty going on. Let's begin with Love is Blind. I, I think my, my first question would be, have you been caught by surprise at all by the popularity of the formats and, and how it's blown up? Or did you always envision it being uh, this big? I think it's hard to to imagine um, the the reception that, uh, that Love is Blind has gotten. I'm incredibly overwhelmed and incredibly uh, grateful for the uh, for the reception that it's gotten, you know, both commercially in terms of the, the fan base that's out there and from the uh, from the critics as well. It's been really nice. And, you know, it's not often that it happens, but uh, yeah, I'm incredibly honored by it. When did you first come up with the idea for Love is Blind um, and how long were you pitching it for? Boy, I think, you know, we, the relationship space is something that we've been in and, I, and I've been in for a while. And, um, you know, Know, it's a it's an area I have a lot of interest in, and we've done quite a few programs that that deal with people in dating and love and marriage. And some of them have worked well, and some of them haven't worked quite as well. So, um, you know, I've been thinking about that space for for quite a long time. You know, and, and always trying to think of new and interesting ideas. And so, I can't tell you exactly the moment. You know, development is a is an evolution. So it's a it's a process that you think of oh, that. Could be interesting and this could be interesting and then ultimately it's like oh, wow and and for me that was what love is blind was was like i mean when i finally felt like i had crystallized the idea in my head it was it was literally like that light bulb went off and it was this this oh my god i i feel like this could be really good and then you know we uh went out and pitched it and um you know it wasn't it wasn't a long process at all i was really um you know lucky that uh you know brandon Rieg and uh derek juan were the people in the meeting when i pitched it and uh, i was just really lucky that they felt about it the same way that i did uh, i think it's formats in the streaming era i think it's such a fascinating time um you know even things like netflix commissioning this up till season five the fact that they're making um, internet national versions. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about building franchises in the streaming era. Do you approach it in a fundamentally different way than you might have done um, when you're creating formats in a linear world? Or is, is, is the I suppose, the approach the, exactly the same? I think the approach is pretty much the same. I think the approach is you want to make a, you know, come up with something you think people will be interested in and, and try to make it as as good as you can. So from that from that standpoint, it's very similar. I think the needs of a streaming platform maybe are, are a little bit different than the needs of a, a linear platform. Whereas if you look at a show like Married at First Sight, Married at First Sight, we produce close to 120 hours a year of Married at First Sight for lifetime in the US. And Netflix as a platform doesn't have the same kind of needs that, that Lifetime does. So I don't ever imagine a day that we will be producing 120 hours a year of Love is Blind. I'd be interested to hear you talk about this, what, what I'm going to call the, the social media feedback loop on a show like Love is Blind. Um, I, I know Kinetic has had big hits in the past, um, but the, the global release on Netflix and coupled with, you know, all the memes that you see online and just the engagement in general seems like it would be basically a different beast, possibly than anything else in the unscripted space at the moment. Um, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about what it's like kind of being at the center of that. I mean, I try to look at um, a lot of it, you know, I think, you know, the, 
the thing about social media is that it, I think there's certain things that are great about it in terms of the immediacy of the feedback. I think, um, you know, we've tried to lean into that with our reunions, for instance, um, on the on the shows that we're doing where, you know, the Love is Blind reunion, for instance, was filmed after the show had been released so that there was for even for the participants themselves, some of that immediate feedback. So I think embracing, you know, the, um, the reality of that environment from a creative standpoint is great. I think, you know, being able again to get immediate feedback, but it's also a very, you know, sort of specifically, uh, you know, segmented uh, portion of the audience. You know, it's not representative. The people who are very active on social media are not necessarily representative of the entirety of the audience. And, and sometimes, you know, again, while I think that the opinions that you see there um, are really interesting, um, you also have to keep in mind that there are, you know, lots and lots and lots of people that don't go out and, you know, post about a show, um, you know, instantaneously. Do you think there'll be any tweaks or changes to the format in subsequent seasons? You know, now that you're commissioned up to season five, and I know season three is in the can already, or do you think is, is the format kind of perfect as is? And, you know, you just find the right people and, and let them go ahead. I um, I think the biggest challenge on this show or any show is to keep it to keep it true to to what it is. You know, I think there are um, shows where they're about gameplay or strategy, and I think those shows rightfully create uh, twists. You know, this season it's this, and this season it's that, and this season you won't guess what's going to happen, and this to me doesn't feel like that kind of show. This this show is a very transparent show with regard to its participants and its audience. And I think that's one of the cool things about it is that we aren't trying to spring anything on anyone. The surprises that I think are in store for the audience, and there are lots of surprises in store for the audience, I think really come out of the genuine stories that the people who participate in, in this uh, program um, support apply by, you know, by living their, by living their lives, at least in the, in the context of this show. Um, I was interested in the the casting side of how the show has come together because I know Netflix about nine months ago they had what they were calling their biggest um, biggest casting call ever. Um, but I also know that typically the production company would handle all the all the casting for a, sh- a show like Love Is Blind. Um, are you able to talk about is the kind of dy- dynamic there? Do you oversee everything, or does Netflix kind of find a group a group of people that could potentially be picked from when you're casting the show? We have we have an amazing casting team um, internally at Kinetic who. Uh, cast across all of our shows that we do. Um, and so, you know, they, they certainly for Love is Blind, they take the lead. But, you know, certainly I think Netflix's efforts are, are really, really broad and can help supplement, you know, things that, things that we do. You know, Love is Blind is, is very particular in that we are um, in a very specific geographic area in each season. Um, that's where the, at least the, the casting pool comes from a very specific geographic area. And so, you know, if we are in, uh, you know, season three of Love is Blind takes place in Dallas, you know, so it doesn't help if you have people from, you know, Portland or whatever, you know. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think it's a, it's a supplement. And I think that, look, there are, there are some other kinds of shows where I think maybe, you know, we we would rely more on on Netflix's team for, for some casting help. With the other versions of the format that have been made in Japan and Brazil, do you lend 
lend your expertise or input to any of those, or is the Bible there, and then uh, the other the other production teams uh, in in those local territories take it from there? We do have a Bible um, that they they look at, um, and look, they, they've been they've been really gracious about having conversations with me about um, what they want to do with the show. There, there are certainly different questions that um, those local teams have asked about what they might do here, might do there. They've even been kind enough to say, would you mind if we change this or that? And of course I, I don't because it's a show that really should lean into the the culture that it comes out of. And I think that they've they've both done great jobs. I think, you know, the, the Japanese version <clears throat> not only with the the casting, but um, but also you know m- more even more so than the Brazilian version with the the set you know really embracing the um, cultural nuance um, that I certainly would never begin to pretend to understand um, you know and um, they've done a great job. Can can you give us an update on where things are at with the the untitled um, kind of crossover dating series that was uh, first announced uh, a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, like are, are you heading into production later this year? Has it already been filmed? Uh, would, would love an update. I cannot say, but I um, will tell you I'm extremely excited about it. Um, and obviously, it, it sounds like there's been a almost certainly a large increase in, in the production volume, or there will be in, in the years ahead. Uh, are you needing to either bring in additional personnel or kind of rejig how uh, how things um, operate in order to accommodate that? I mean, it's a great question. I think um, it, it goes without saying that you know there there no no one human does everything on their own or no you know and and um, you know we we are fortunate and I'm fortunate enough to have a great group of colleagues who do amazing work to make the shows that we do come to life. And, and yes, we've expanded that team a little bit and trusted the people who, um, who do such a great job to, you know, take on even more responsibility. Um, so yeah, we, we've, we have grown. Do you have many projects in development at the moment or are your hands pretty full with um, all the shows and new shows that you've recently had commissioned? Um, we are, um, we're always developing, you know, we, we don't, we don't pitch that much. Actually, we, we generally, we, we focus on a few things and we, um, we do have some, some stuff that we're excited about that's kind of in, in our own internal hopper. And, um, but yeah, we have, we have quite a few productions going on. We have quite a few shows that that'll that'll premiere soon and you know uh, you know and, and again it's really just about it's for me it's less about the um the volume that we have and more about continuing to try to make sure that the shows that we're producing are really are really well done and and continue to be compelling because because if you slip for a moment and you ignore the main task at hand, you know, you're, you know, it's everything's sort of off or not. Do you, do you think with, with the ultimatum, do you think of that in terms of potential franchise um, prospects or did you wait, wait till it's premiered and see how it lands before, uh, before you start talking about that kind of thing? I think obviously it's that you have to wait and see how people react to it. But I, but no, I, I think, look, you, you, I think you have a good feel for whether something works or not. They've already ordered a second season of it, which we're excited about. 
out and they've announced. And I think it has long legs. So yes, I do think it has franchise potential. What are some of your goals for the year ahead? It sounds like you're you're busy, but maybe kind of uh, yeah, thirty thousand uh, thirty thousand foot strategic objectives or hopes for the for the next twelve months. I don't want to give you a boring answer. But I feel like it is a boring answer, but it is. I mean, true, honestly, my goals are to make the best shows we can make. I mean, that's really honestly, that's the you know. I mean, I, I you know, I was an agent for a long time, a talent agent, and you know, an alternative packaging agent, and you know, I did that for almost fifteen years. And I, you know, you're you've got like five thousand things going on all the time, and you know, what's going on here? What's going on here? What's going on here? What's going on here? And I feel like as an agent, you kind of have to be. I feel like my job as a producer and and in my in my life is try to focus on you know try to make my focus be more intense and and simplified in a way and not try to be everything to everyone but just come up with some good ideas and make them really well and hopefully people will find it and, and enjoy watching them and so that that literally is it yeah as you said there as someone that was an agent for 15 years kind of before you moved on to the onto the production side so you clearly know the the industry extremely intimately how do you assess the opportunities for, for producers today in 2020 in this uh, in this landscape, I think there's more opportunity than ever. Um, really, I think you know there are there are so many buyers out there who who want content. There are so many different models, business models that are up for discussion. I think you know everyone is everyone is trying to figure out. We're all in this ecosystem together, and um, I think there's a lot of room for a lot of a lot of great shows. Uh, obviously, there are a lot of shows being produced. And I think, yeah, I think it's the best time ever to be making content. It's really exciting. I think you have quite an interesting role in that it's not always the case that the creator of the show is also the CEO of the company. Um, how, how is that, uh, apart from busy, um, and I know it's not something new necessarily for you, but in this, new, uh, in this new phase of the company where there's so much going on with Love is Blind and some of the other franchises, um, how is that dynamic? Um, I think, you know, again, our, our, sort of our philosophy at this company is that, you you know, everybody does does whatever is needed to, to be done. And so, and that doesn't really stop or apply, stop with or apply just to me. It's everybody across the board. And so a, a great idea for a show can come from anywhere. A, you know, person can be writing a treatment one day and in the edit the next day and, you know, helping put a, a schedule together the, the following day or, or all on one day. And so I, you know, I don't really look at my role or like I said, any, really anybody else's role as being exclusive to that one specific job title. And, um, you know, I really believe that that obviously you have priorities and what you need to get done, but outside of that, you should be able to do whatever you want. And, and I believe that my biggest priority as the person leading the company is to come up with and make sure we as a company come up with and produce great, great shows. Chris Colan speaking with Jordan Pinto. Astrid and Lily Save the World is a 10-part young adult sci-fi series which debuted on NBC Universal Cablenet Sci-Fi earlier this year. Produced by Blue Ice Pictures and created by showrunners Betsy Van Stone and Noel Stedman. The show stars Jana Morrison and Samantha Orquan as a pair of high school best friend outcasts whose lives become more complicated when they accidentally open a portal to a terrifying monster dimension. The series mixes horror and comedy, upending traditional tropes to promote a more positive feminist image.
Distributed by XTX Television, Astrid and Lily has already been picked up by parties including RTL Deutschland in Germany, Seymour in the Nordics and YesDBS in Israel. Van Stone and Stamen spoke to Nico Franks about the series Genesis, the reaction it's had so far in the US and why they feel it will resonate with audiences around the world. I am Betsy Van Stone, one of the creators and showrunners of Astrid and Lily Saves the World. And I'm Noelle Stamen, the other co-creator and showrunner of Astrid and Lily Saves the World. And so as we speak, uh, the show is on air in the States and it's also rolling out internationally. But let's go back to the beginning. So tell me a bit about the process of developing the show and um, the process of it getting greenlit by sci-fi. So, you know, this all came to be because Noelle and I have always written written characters that are strong female. We, we tend to write for outcasts who are, you know, underrepresented people you might not see in the lead roles. Or sometimes any roles. Or sometimes any roles. <laughs> yeah. And we just really started focusing on the fact that, God, there really hasn't been a show about two teenage girls who are really outcast from, you know, from school society who end up, you know, in this like super powerful role and you know specifically with with actresses who maybe have normal bodies instead of you know little tiny size zero bodies and so that was like part of it and then it was you know we love nerds and outcasts because that's you know who we are and we just wanted to to find a way to to give them agency over their own life and like I don't know let them be the stars of the show for once yeah so it, it really started with the characters for us and um I can say in terms of the sci-fi development initially it was more of a, a mystery horror comedy that didn't have monsters in it <laughs> and then sci-fi came along we met um, a wonderful executive over there um, named Josh Van Hout who basically was like we love I love the script can you tweak it to make it something for sci-fi and so I'm a longtime horror fan um, particularly all the 80s 90s you know uh, Wes Craven and all the prosthetic stuff so basically since we were dealing with high school and all of the angst and horror of high school, just emotionally and socially, we thought what better way to tie that in to bring in monsters of the week and really like elevate those themes through the monsters. So that was kind of how it became the monster of the week show that it turned into. And tell me a bit about how it's been received by the, the sci-fi community. It's been really wonderful, really exciting. The sci-fi community has really embraced it. I, and this was our hope for it, but to see all the fans, particularly saying things like, I haven't seen myself on TV before. We keep hearing that over and over again. And that has been such a beautiful thing to see. Yeah. I mean, I would have loved a show like this when I was in high school, you know, and ha having monsters in a show, in, in a high school show, you can really play with, like Noelle was saying, all the terrible parts of high school. <laughs> Um, and we threw all of those thematically into each monster. And so it was really just like, it was such a fun way to combine it. And I think fans are really reacting to that well. I mean, it seems yeah. like not only are they responding to the representation of different people in the leads, but, you know, with the the, the, the sci-fi element as well, it's like, oh my God, I've never seen myself represented on screen in anything let alone a sci-fi show, which is like doubly cool. So I think yeah. that's kind of the general response 
forgetting. And I've also really loved people's appreciation of the throwback to, like I said, the 80s, 90s <clears throat> prosthetics. People have liked that fun, tactile, nostalgic element. So that's been great to see because we had a lot of fun playing with that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a great mix of, kind of uh, the quirkiness and then also the darkness of, yeah, the, the horror elements and, and also very funny. So how did you go about combining all those different elements? Well, we definitely have always tended toward dark comedy. So that part was pretty natural to our style. And I think that horror and comedy go really well together. Um, They both have that element of showcasing sort of elevated real life situations, but without seeming like you're trying to give too much medicine, so to speak. So I think they are a natural fit. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I would only add that it made so much sense that we could say, you know, who are the real monsters, Mm -hmm. the jerks in school or you know, the monster is trying to ruin the world. And it was like, that was such a happy marriage (laughs) that it was kind of a seamless combination, I think, for us. And in terms of some of the the kind of parts of growing up and kind of the coming of age elements of the show, what were some of the things that you really wanted to to make sure you covered? Well, one element we talked a lot about, um, you know, when the when the the pilot starts, you've got our leads and then you have sort of the mean kids and and the, the sort of archetype of those mean kids. But it was important to us to show that every Everyone in high school and, you know, this kind of extends to all ages, but kind of everyone is having a hard time and people show it in different ways. And we wanted to make sure throughout the season to, to show the other dimensions of all the kids and kind of what they're going through and have them grow and have them start to see the similarities between themselves that they're all kind of, you know, having a hard time and maybe not comfortable talking about it. But then if they start to talk about it, they can see that there's a lot more commonality there than they realized. So that was really important to us. Yeah. And along with that, you know, everyone gets labeled something in high school. And I think it was important for us to to show the world that like, just because somebody calls you something, just because somebody slaps a label on you, you know, that just doesn't make it true. And so to make our two leads cognizant of that and, you know, evolve in a way that they, they really learn that. I think that was really important. Yeah. And then also the fact that it's sort of the things that make you quote unquote different that make you strong and interesting and to really embrace those those things and um so it was made with uh, so STX television um, and they're distributing it as well and um, I think part of their ambitions are to to create programming for women and underrepresented audiences so how did the the, the kind of partnership between you and STX come about that was through our uh, production company, Blue Ice Pictures. Um, so they really facilitated all of all of that. But it's you know they they were STX was a wonderful partner and gave us excellent notes. Yeah, <laughs> really funny. <clears throat> they have they have very very uh, strong sense of humor over there, which you really appreciated. They gave us great notes in that way. Yeah, they were really lovely yeah. from the first phone call. I mean, it was they just got it. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no know them telling us to shift anything major like all their Absolutely. notes were really minor um and incredibly supportive and partners, very yeah. supportive yeah they just got it they loved the world and you know that's all you can hope for when you're creating something that might feel a little different or scary to people 
when you find someone that, you know, is on the same page, it's, it's such a breath of fresh air, um, that we, yeah, we've loved working with them. And in terms of creating content for a young adult audience, is that a group that you think of specifically when you're developing and writing, or is it something that kind of just happens more naturally? Cause it is a notoriously difficult audience to reach and and it's, it's part of the reason why, you know, the streamers have been so successful as well. Yeah. You know, we had not actually written something for kind of a younger audience, but we always were trying to find the right project to do so. You know, as we kind of said before, high school is a really hard time for everyone. And within that, you know, there's natural awkwardness, there's natural stresses. There's just like, like emotions are so heightened that it was a field we knew we wanted to play in. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm just glad we got to do it in a way that, that hopefully gives our target demo a little bit of confidence. Cause you know, I think you don't always get that from your, your programs, you know? Yeah. And, and I think we tend to, no matter what age we're writing for, we tend to focus on those types of themes that Betsy was just talking about. So we, we really just extended it to that age range. And we remember high school very clearly. I think we all do. There's a lot of stuff that happens during that time in your life that really does kind of carry through. So it wasn't a big leap to focus on that, that age range. Yeah, honestly, I mean, I don't really think high school ever ends, does it? I mean, you know, in some ways it, it really doesn't. And so, yeah, it was not that it was easy to get in the minds of high school students, but in a lot of ways, you know, all those painful memories from back then, they stay with you. And so I think poking at those memories and really getting in there and bringing it to life, it was kind of cathartic, Yeah, I think. Mm-hmm. And how are you imagining international audiences are going to react to the show? So RTL, Deutschland and in Germany and Seymour in the Nordics uh, are among the broadcasters to have picked it up. So how are you hoping audiences there see it? I think they'll like it. I think, I think, and I hope that they'll enjoy the quirkiness. You know, I think international audiences are sophisticated and we, we like to watch a lot of basically murder mystery <laughs> foreign shows that we're big fans of. I think there's an appetite for this kind of thing over there. So I, I hope, yeah, I hope that they'll enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, hope universal. I think that they probably are, you know, I think there's not a person in this world who hasn't felt insecure or cast aside at some point in their lives, you know? And so, yeah, I think it's going to resonate. I hope. And feminism and horror have, have not always been two things that have gone together hand in hand. So how is that genre evolving and is it evolving differently on TV as it is in film? I think it's evolving in both quadrants. I mean, it might have started evolving more quickly in film, to be honest, but I do think a lot of people are taking advantage of, like I said, using those themes in horror comedy, but particularly horror to turn the tropes on their head. It's kind of convenient how uh, not how anti-feminist some of these things used to be, because now you can take those tropes and just completely underline how they were sort of backwards. And <laughs> and showcase, you know, some really cool feminist themes now. So I think it's happening in both places. And it's an exciting time to be able to do that because I think there's the audience for it now. There's the support for it now from the studios and the the production companies. So that's very exciting. Yeah. I mean, I'll just add, I think in a lot of ways, the world kind of woke up to, um, you know, the feminist plight (laughs) and people are more open now than they were even five years ago. And are in fact craving content now. Yeah. And is that 
being re- reflected in i don't want to say the other necessarily the other projects you're working on because i know just one show is such an amazing feat <laughs> um but in terms of you know other things you might have an eye on or just how you're you know seeing hollywood develop yeah i would i would say those themes have always been reflected in our writing and we didn't necessarily have the support for it 15 years ago and now we do which is why it's so exciting um especially again when you see the fans saying things like i'm seeing myself in these shows i haven't seen that before it's you know it's very yeah exciting. it's very gratifying so, so we'll, we will definitely continue to reflect those themes <laughs> We're always going to write incredibly strong, dynamic, complicated, funny women Yeah, yeah. in our shows as our leads. Like that's never going to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe credit isn't the right phrase, but are there any particular kind of platforms or broadcasters that you think are kind of leading the way in, in that or shows? Mm-hmm. That's a tough one. That is a tough one. I mean, from a body neutrality position, I think, you know, Shrill was kind of the first show you know to put a woman with a body you know that most women in this world have as the lead and Mm -hmm. and you know my god that like I remember watching that show going oh my god this is that's me that could be me you know I'd never felt that before and I would imagine that millions of women had the same reaction so I think that really resonated with me absolutely um well and, and I mean, I have to give sci-fi credit in general to think that they have been for a while now showcasing underrepresented characters. So that's that's not something that they've been scared of for a while. So I think it's, you know, hopefully going to extend more to, some, to, to all the platforms, I guess, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, you know, Hulu, Amazon, yeah. Apple, uh, Peacock, they're all putting out really interesting female-led mm-hmm. shows mm-hmm. that, you know, I don't think we would have seen a few years ago. Yeah, absolutely. So I think... I think I give credit to everyone, really. I don't, yeah, like, I don't think anyone really stands out outside of, like, Shrill, I think I was Hulu, right? I think so. Yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. No, that's great. Yeah. And um, I suppose, you know, there's a commonality there in that streaming is is a lot of those. And obviously, sci-fi is a mix. So Mm -hmm. it's not, you know, exclusive to the streamers. But yeah, I wonder, do you think it's the the fact that they're subscription services? So maybe, you know, you don't have the, the advertising element, but also I suppose there's this growing awareness maybe that niche isn't actually that niche yeah I, I think I, that's yeah. I think that's it I think you yeah. said all of it yeah I think yeah. it's not being beholden to the advertisers as much and also realizing that niche is pretty pervasive quote unquote. right and I think you know I think for a long time there was this misconception that a oh, women don't watch tv women don't watch movies like <laughs> They were like forgetting this, you know, yeah. the, the whole gender <laughs> to be to be like less important somehow than what men wanted to see. And, uh, you know, I think we're seeing that that's absolutely not true. Mm-hmm. And I suppose just finally, I suppose, in terms of how have you found the the release kind of week by week? And, and as, as the show is built up, how have you found that with this show compared to other shows? It's It's been really exciting. I think the most exciting part has been watching the fans just show up and get more and more vocal particularly I think somewhere around maybe episode seven or eight there was a TikTok video that went a little bit viral and yeah just all of a sudden people were finally discovering the show and trying to get their friends to watch it and just talking about it a lot on social media and again to see all these people saying that they recognize themselves was really exciting so it's been exciting all along but seeing the fans come out and be so enthusiastic and get so much out of it 
it has been the most gratifying part. Betsy Van Stone and Noel Stearman speaking with Nico Franks. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning into the C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Tuesday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.